what's the biggest deal you ever signed? So it was a nine figure deal. So over a hundred million dollars. I go back and I look at my past and it's not a linear path. You know, it's a zigzagging path all the way up. I woke up and I had to go and stand on stage in front of 350 people and say, hi, I'm Jess. I'm here, happy Jess, the positive person in the room, when my life had just fallen apart by a text message. <laughs> that was the start of the dark, but the light was the fact that, God, I had to pull myself through it. I had to grasp and grind every day. There was no way in my life I was giving up on that challenge. We all have the ability within us to do whatever we want. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Welcome to Brick by Brick episode 11 with Jessica Harrison Bolton, creative director at IBM. Yes. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Lovely to see you. Yeah, and you. Thank you for coming on. No problem, huh? It's my pleasure to have you on. Do you want to tell the audience about your job and what you do? Alrighty, straight in there. So I am Jess I'm Harrison Bolton. So I work with your kind self at IBM. Currently, I'm a creative director and I work in the big deals team. So our team is a team of creatives from all over the world, mainly India and Europe. We only deal with deals usually that are sort of over 20 million, anything up to over nine figures. We're super creative. We work on lots of innovation. We look at the latest technology and we try and bring that into the stories that we tell um, at IBM. And I'm super, super passionate um, about hopefully telling great stories and helping and coach people to do the same. Um, anything from young juniors who are in school through to associates, through to directors and partners. So that's my job today. It's been my pleasure, actually, to work with you and see how you operate, see how you work. Um, what's your highlight stat? What's the best, what's the biggest deal you ever signed? Full park. Uh, well, it was actually last year. So it was a nine figure deal. So over a hundred million dollars. Yeah. So that was, I was the lead creative director on that deal. So I'm very proud to say I was part of a big team uh, that got that over the line, but it was a brand new client, which is even better um, for us. And um, yeah, glad to say it's in full flight now and the team are getting on really well and growing the account. So really proud. That is insane. So how does a creative director role look? There's a lot actually, and it's really different. I think um, part of the role of a creative director is to really help simplify the complexity of the deals. Our deals are huge. Yes, IBM is a big technology and innovation company. We're always innovating and they've been doing it for a hundred years. But part of what we're seeing today is such a shift in the way that we, the consumer, likes to consume content, who likes to buy and purchase things online, who likes to be serviced in a certain way. And we, as a company, as every company on the world is finding out now, and we're consulting about this every day, is that we have to change. And we have to think about the human inside that room that we're going into when we're pitching, whether it's a pitch, whether it's a workshop, whether it's a first conversation, and really think about what is it that their need is? 
How are they going to consume the best um, information? Are they a thinker? Are they a doer? Are they kinesthetic? Are they, and you've got to think about how they learn and consume um, that information and what's important to them. Is their job on the line? Is it that their team is growing exponentially and they don't know what's going on? And as a creative director, I consume all that information from every angle and then I try and simplify it into a story that makes sense. And then what I will do is I do everything from strategy through to storytelling, through to presenting confidence, coaching, through to drawing wireframes um, and sketching for the team um, to then helping the team and mentor and coach them to bring to life those ideas. So I will brief the team um, on all those ideas that we've put together on the script, on the storyline, and I'll be the person responsible for that output in the boardroom or wherever it may be um, for the pitches that we're doing for the large deal. So my role is very varied. So I try and bring all of that together um, to help our partners make the best decisions and to hopefully give us some sort of competitive advantage over our competitors and help IBM stand out in a different way that typically we haven't been seen as before. We've had people say, um, we didn't necessarily win on the solution. The solution was a tiny bit, um, maybe not as good as the other one, but they came and had a workshop with us and they were so wowed by the experience and how we all worked together and the different pieces of innovation that, that went on throughout the day that they all came out of that workshop and went, my God, I just don't want to work with anyone else. And I believe in IBM and that's exactly what we're there to do. So what in your mind is the sort of pipeline of ideas from all the team chucking ideas in there to choosing a final idea? Are you like throw everything against the wall and then come back the next day? How does the creative process work for you? Ooh, yeah. I'm quite strict with this because I'm very a bit, a bit OCD compared to the other creative directors. So I'm very much, I like people to have time. I think time and creativity is so important. I want everyone to read the brief. I want everyone to go on the website. I want them to understand the brand and the people and the audience that they're going to be marketing to. Because at the end of the day, we're doing marketing, we're doing brand, we're doing creative. So we've got to understand the people that are in the room um, and what we're trying to do, we don't need to understand necessarily the solution. Our team are there to do that. They are the experts on that. But my team and like our, our ES, experiential selling team, we are very much the experts in creative. So I, I get them to go and understand the human, understand the business first, get some, get the juices flowing, make mood boards. We use different tools like Mural and we just get them all Figma and we get them to put them on a board. And I'll give them some direction around where I think the brand needs to be, whether it's a joint branded thing, whether it's a more client branded thing, or whether it's a purely IBM branded thing, which is not very often because um, we like to keep it client focused. But I think I'll start with the discovery. And then from there, I'll get them to present that back to me and I'll question them. Why, 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 why is that there? What value does that bring? What, what emotion does that make you feel? And what do we, what's the emotion we want the client to feel? And does that brand distill that emotion? And then we, we present that back. And I often get the, the team to put together a little deck or a, a, work, um, a mural board where they, I, I like it in number order. There's a reason why I want them to understand the reason why we've thought about this, what we've researched. And then just like old fashioned creative when I was in advertising, then you present what you've done. And we often give different um, ideas and different brand ideas 
Um, and then we get the client to choose the best one. So the client at this point is our internal clients so or our partners. Um, and then what we do is we start to look at, okay, how do we now put this in the pre-activity, the during activity and the post-activity? So, um, and that's where then we have lots of ideas, shopping list of ideas, like you would if you were creating an event and you know, a brand, big shopping list of ideas. And then what we do is we present that back with a budget, with a revised brand. Um, and then we sort of go in and pitch it. We pitch it's our job then to present it back to our client to get them excited and say, imagine if you walked in, here's your mindset, here's, here's how you deliver it. And we walk them through the process. Sometimes we write a script for them. Sometimes we do a little mock-up. Um, just all the stuff you would expect, I guess, out of a design agency. And then eventually they'll the client will choose what they want. Or sometimes we just say, this is what you're having because it's all the time we've got. <laughs> uh, and then we go ahead and produce it. And then we work with the client then on the storyline and on all of those bits that they bring that help us bring all those bits together. But I'm very strict on that initial process. That process pretty much is the same every time but other people who might be in other businesses or starting their own business and they're in this sort of sales back and forth whether it's a big pitch for hundreds of millions or signing a first client for like a thousand pounds what should the person be thinking about so i would definitely say absolutely number one is understanding their challenges so number one is what are the problems that you are trying to solve for them not for you, for them. So it's all about them, whether it's them personally, their business. Why are you in the room? Again, Simon Sinek, power of why. Then get enough information out of them so that you understand what their challenges are, what their timelines are, what their metrics are, what are they trying to achieve as a business? So I always go through actually a five stage. When I was in sales, I'd go through like, um, there's a few stages. What, do you, what are you trying to achieve in the next three years? What are you trying to achieve this year? Um, what challenges are there? Where are you at in that process? Um, what's the impact of you not doing that now? So that's where you really find out how important is it to them? Because there's no point. I see so many businesses waste time and money on pitches. Pitches cost the business money. We're using our time as consultants to create something and a solution back to that client. So you've got to be really, really careful on your time. And I think that's where your qualification processes comes in. And that's where you've got to really understand, is this going to impact them now? And if it's impacting them now, what's the fact, like the monetary value? If you can try and get some sort of figure, what's the impact of you not doing this now from a monetary value perspective? Um, and then if there's, that's not there, then you'll obviously need to speak to them more on a one-to-one -one basis, get to know the client, build the relationship, and then really just ask them those questions. Be honest. There's nothing better than building a relationship with a client one-to-one -one, like us talking today. And then getting to the point where you could ask them those questions. Everything has to go out with utmost quality. Because it's like those, if you go to a shop and you buy a you buy a top or something that's broken, what are you going to do? You're going to return it. And in consultancy, you don't often get the chance to do that. It's a very different mentality. So make sure you deliver. Like my number one rule is understand the 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 need and make sure that it fits, aligns business to business and we can do it. But when you commit and you go for it and you win it, or even through the winning process, every single touch point should be done with high performance, high quality, um, and make sure there's no typos and the language is right. And believe me, I've had posters go out before where someone's missed a, a spelling mistake by mistake. And I'm like, that, that just can't happen again. 
and I hate saying that word, but it's so important. That's why I have three people QAing stuff. I'm literally that crazy about it, but it's so important because that's what people see. Yeah, that's fascinating. Did you think when you were younger that you'd be working for an international tech company, closing nine-figure deals? What was your... (laughs) Did you... Would you ever imagine that? No, I'd have been on stage in a band touring worldwide, I think. <laughs> Singing my way through uh, through the record box. <laughs> so what was your first job? So I think my first like proper paid job was when I was 15 years old. And I remember, this is going to go back now, I was looking in a local paper <laughs> for the ads. <laughs> for finding a job and there was a big a big advert there which said JJB on and that used to be Dave Whelan who, who owned uh, Wigan Athletic Football Club and Wigan Rugby League. He just um, was building a brand new football stadium in Wigan um, for the teams and it was the first time the two teams were going to play in the same ground and it was a beautiful stadium. It was really lovely. It was about 25,000 capacity uh, or something like that. And um, it, it was to work in the kitchens, literally. So my first job, I did three years as a kitchen porter. Um, as, as usual, worked my way up to like chief kitchen porter, made that title up myself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. I absolutely, honestly, I loved it. It was one of my the hardest jobs I think I've ever done in my life. And it's made me hate, it made me come off like lasagna for a long time. And I, I've never eaten mayonnaise since. But I <laughs> think... But it, I realised I was a problem solver. I think it's like a rite of passage to have a, a job when you're 15, 16, 17, 18, <laughs> and it's horrible. So what did you learn from that, that someone who's listening who's maybe a bit younger might be able to take hope from that they're not going to be stuck in whatever position <laughs> they're in forever? And they may love there that position, and that's fine. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> There was, well, there was one instance, I've only just started telling this story recently because I've been doing a lot of work with um, some of our apprentices um, and telling stories around trying to understand the skills needed for being a good consultant. I was doing a talk actually two weeks ago in Manchester to our IBM associates and I one of the, um, one of the screens that I put up had four images and one of them was... Um, was a girl under a sink <laughs> with a rubber glove on the pipe and a big bucket underneath. And I was like, what, what skill set do you think that reminds you of? And actually someone, someone was like, uh, cleaning. I was like, no, come on, think about what we do in our job. And then someone put their hand up and was like, problem solving. I was like, yes. And it was, it was actually the, all the images. There was one of um, a girl, and there was a girl on stage. We were all women because it was about me. Um, girl on stage and was working in a bar which is customer service, girl on stage, which was confidence and um, being able to present and speak. It was a problem solving. Um, I've totally forgotten the fourth one, it'll come to me. But um, basically they were actually some of the the skills that and the jobs that I'd had over time that I now look back on sort of 20 years later and I'm like, oh yeah, I was doing this stuff way before. So back to the question, would you have thought you'd be in a big quizzle and say, absolutely not. But when I go back and I look at my path and it's not a linear path, you know, it's a zigzaggy path all the way up. Um, would I have thought, no, but I've been doing it since day one. And there was this little um, story where we were in the marquee and the marquee kitchen 
is like was totally the other side of the stadium. We were in there all night and there's probably a team of five of us working and about six chefs. So it's a big, big team, 500 people, probably about five course meal. And we got about halfway through service and we're all like, you know, fast and furious. It's like sweating, it's going mad. And then I suddenly see this pool of water on the floor by where all the chefs were. And I was like, shit. <laughs> and then I said to the team, I was like, carry on. I'm just going to fix, see what's going on. I had these big like potato buckets. I can't believe I can remember this. Big potato buckets that were empty because they'd you know, done, done the spuds and the chips. And I put a bucket underneath it. I'm like, oh my God, there's nothing in this kitchen. I'm going to have to go all the way back. So I tell the team, just keep an eye on that bucket. If you need to change it, change it. And I ran back. All the way, it's about like, you know, normally it's about a 10 minute walk, to about five minutes to get to the other side of the stadium. I got in the kitchen, I was like, what can I do? What can I do? And at that point, what was looking at me was a big rubber glove, a pair of scissors, and a bit of sellotape. And I was like, great. <laughs> I just I just grabbed <laughs> that, ran all the way back. Um, and at this point, the bucket was like overflowed. So I quickly chucked that over, put it back underneath, and I put the rubber glove over the pipe, bound it up with the sellotape really tight and then left it and it stopped, it stopped leaking. I was like, brilliant, carried on with service. And then I remember Warren, who was the sous chef, and he, he just shouted out at one point, Jess, what the effing hell is a glove doing on the pipe? And I was like, don't move it, don't move it, don't move it. I was like, we've had a leak, but it's all right, it's holding. I saw him looking at it really perplexed and he was like, did you think of that? I was like yeah of course I did and like in a split second I'd you know we'd gone from what could have been a disaster i.e the whole kitchen could have been flooded because it was pouring out to one split second of what can I do looking at what was around me and I've always been like resourceful and resilient like that and also creative in my problem solving and when you look at that compared to what I do today it's exactly the same it's just it's more consultancy and creative on a screen and using tech rather than fixing a problem in a kitchen. But it's the same thing. Yeah, I love that. And I, I often <laughs> think some people just don't have that. I don't know what the word is, like resourcefulness. I think that's such a useful skill. Yeah. What do you think are the most useful skills that people should develop? What are the key skills like resourcefulness? that you wouldn't expect are super important, but in actual fact are important. I think one of the biggest points that I've learned through the years and from a lot of people I've worked with is it's people skills and it's the ability to smile, be personable and be, be the positive one in the room. At the end of the day, people buy from people they like, people buy from people who have similar values, people connect with people. We're not there usually to buy technology. We're usually buying technology of people who are selling that technology in. So yes, the technology has to be good and fit for purpose. But at the end of the day, if everyone's selling the same technology, you have to buy from one, one supplier. You're going to buy from the people that you got on the best with and that talked the right talk, who were open, honest, kind, didn't give you the hard sell. We're going to be this this year. You're going to do some workshops with a big, big company um, who and mainly security people. And they have to write business cases. They have to present business cases back to their business. And they are people that don't want to tell a story. They just want to make sure that they're safe, they're secure, that the company is not going to go under, it's not going to be hacked. Um, 
they don't want to have to go in front of people and present in a nice positive way and tell them what the impact is. They just want to write a business case, get the facts in, and then crack on with their job is what we've found. But they're finding they're struggling because they can't get their messages through in the right way. So then their business cases are getting rejected. If you're trying to connect with them to sell something or to get something approved, then you have to find a way. And I hate having saying have to, but you do have to find a way to connect with those people. And that will be in a multitude of different ways. Um, and a lot of people these days hide through technology and hide through Slack or hide through WebEx or text. It's like dating. <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, it's mm -hmm. like people hide through it. So, but if you can be the personable person on that call, you put your camera on, you smile, you understand like that the way to get to them is by talking about the problem and then how you're going to solve it. So not going in with you first, always going in with them and going in with the, um, the problem and the challenge or, and then give them the vision of what you can do together. That's the kind of stuff that I've learned over the years. It doesn't come easy. And especially if you're not as extrovert as I am, I love getting into a room and being chucked in at the deep end. And I've always loved that. And I think my singing helped me with that. But that's not easy. And I think if you can understand that that is actually a critical part of every job pretty much in the world, even if you sat in your own room cupboard, cupboard like I sometimes feel like I'm in here, <laughs> I'm still dealing with people on a WebEx 20, you know, all, all the hours of the day. So how can I show up differently? How can I be that person? I don't have to speak all the time. I could be the I could be listening the entire time and say one comment at the end. But when I say that comment, you say it positively with a smile, with assertiveness, however you need to be in that room and you grab attention um, and then follow up and then follow up on what you've said you're going to do. There's something really interesting you said there that rings a bell to me. I was DJing last weekend to, Yay. and I've DJed other times to not, not loads of people, more people than is naturally comfortable. And when you're like mm -hmm. doing live performances, that there's nowhere to hide and it's all out there and I'm quite extroverted, but that makes me feel very introverted because it's unnatural mm. and all eyes are on you. So it's scary. It's something you have to overcome. Um, and I always at the start, I'm always, even with the start of these podcasts, sometimes I'm, it's, it's the, the hardest bit for me, just getting from not doing it to doing it. That transition is very hard. How do you deal with that? It is hard. I struggle with the same. So I, if it was you like going in to perform, I would look at something you could do before that makes you feel calm and that makes you feel, some people like to feel powerful and positive. Some people like to just go into their Zen and be like, no, I'm in inner power. And whatever it is, Tony Robbins bounces on a bouncerina thing, right? He has to power up. <laughs> he goes in there, boom, on stage. What is your persona? What do you do? And for me, if I'm like going to go and do a presentation or I'm going to start something with the team, I, I literally like sometimes I'll read like an affirmation. I've got these affirmation cards that are in my, in my room. And sometimes I'll read an affirmation that's been shown up for the day and I'll just say it a few times. Sometimes I'll do a power pose. Sometimes I'll do like a breathing exercise if I'm feeling a bit <laughs> flustered and I just need to bring my, my mind back into Zen. And then I'm in the, in the mindset that I know what I'm doing and I go in and I start my process. And my process goes discovery, you know, presentation, design, build, whatever. 
and I go back through that process. And I think the more you repeat that and repeat it and repeat it, it becomes part of your ethos, your blood, your nature. And whether it's a thousand, hundred thousand people or 10, if you, you, that process is so well ingrained in your body that it's just another day and it's just another presentation. It's just another DJ event. And you can give your energy to getting on stage and performing rather than huddling it all up inside and being nervous about it and then potentially fluffing your first line. So it's very much what works for you. But I think if you can find that, practice it, practice, breathe. Okay, say that a bit slower. That's the key point. And you go through bits like that and then they practice that and practice that. And then when they go to do it, it's just like second nature. It's the same with you. Are you going to do whatever you do before you get on stage? Practice what works. Try a few different things. And whatever makes you feel the best, just run with it. And then if you need to tweak it in the future, tweak it. Well, yeah, interesting. Give it a go, Ollie. Give it a go and let me know what you do. Yeah. I know Johnny Wilkinson, before he would take kicks in rugby games, he would like dig his toes into the floor so that he could feel something. And then he'd yeah, focus nice. on the feeling and that would take him out of his head, for example. Yeah, yeah I need to definitely... It's usually taking it out of your head and putting the power into your body and getting your body focused and your mind focused. But it's hard. I still get really like, if I'm going on stage and I'm doing like, even an open mic night, um, which for me should be dead easy but because I'm not performing anymore like I used to and I've not performed for years in a band and I'm dying you know dying to do it um, to get back singing again and I do little open mic nights every so often or a karaoke night or whatever but if I want to take it seriously you know I don't drink I'll I'll do that I'll get my body prepared I'll do a few exercises on my voice and I can tell obviously tell a massive difference when I do that compared to if I've had a, if I've had a few drinks I'm just on karaoke and everyone's screaming <laughs> and you're all shouting and you know that you can't control your voice. You can't, my voice goes all over the place. I'm like, well, I've sang all my life and I can't sing a note that I want to sing. It's because I've not done the prep. So it's very, very the same. What is the scariest thing you've ever done then? I think the scariest thing, this is going to be quite different, was moving to America and scariest but best. And at the time I had... A family or family over here, like a dog, dog and horse family, nice house, cars, all the <laughs> stuff that you think you want when you're younger. Um, and yeah, I did leave all of that. I got offered to go for three months. I remember I was sat in a coffee shop in Starbucks with my ex-CTO and we always had little one-to-ones and I was trying to go for a promotion and I thought he was going to say, oh, I've just been in a meeting and I don't think you're going to get it yet. And he started the meeting with, I've just been in a board meeting. I was like, how did I predict this? <laughs> <laughs> My gut is always right. But he totally went off piece and said, we're looking at going to America. I don't know what the time scale is. We've just been in a board meeting. Your name has been flagged by a few of the directors would you consider going? And I remember like literally nearly dropping my, my coffee and <laughs> just going, <laughs> oh my God, yes, because I'd wanted to go abroad for years. I've been manifesting that for about 10 years in my career, manifesting it. I want to live in America. My uncle lives in America. Every Christmas, he'd always said to me, how's the plans? Are you, are you moving over yet? I was like, no, no. Every year I had to say <laughs> no. And I was fed up of saying no to my uncle. And then literally I was like, god oh my god and then um, i literally just said yes i was like i don't have to speak to my partner at the time i was like, I don't have to do this but i was like yes yes put my name down and he was like 
So, but if you could go, how soon would you go? I was like, um, I don't know. I'll have to speak to my partner. Um, but how long is it for? And he said, probably just for three months. So it was only going to be a short term thing. Um, anyway, long story short, I ended up being there for nearly two years and um, helped them build the business over there. Got to build some really great relationships. My boss was the CEO and I'd gone from being an account director, suddenly working for the CEO. So I got to see loads of the business. I never got to see, I got to sit in all the board meetings. I got to run workshops and all sorts of stuff. And it was just a highlight of my career today. Got to say, just an amazing opportunity. Do you think you run towards scary things? <laughs> I think I get bored <laughs> very quickly with um, the status quo. I don't think in life we don't stand still. Um, I'm a big go-getter. I hike. I do horse riding, biking. I'm gonna do my first sort of triathlon thingy this year i'm always trying to do something new because my brain just needs to be creative and do different things but i think scary things i love to tackle them like i really do love to tackle them i don't like not being able to do anything <laughs> so i usually will go at it until i can do it there's sort of no stopping once the ball gets well so i'm a bit like you at the beginning i'm sometimes a bit like oh do i you know how do i get over that first line but usually once I get over the hurdle, like that's it, the ball's rolling and I'm going. Yeah, I agree. I think more people should take a few more chances and put yourself in situations where like yeah, everything could go horribly wrong. What was the scariest part of the American trip? Because you must have been sort of out on your own. <sighs> yeah, I think I think this is where the America trip was was a tale of two halves, light and dark. I won't sugarcoat it. Like it was the hardest thing I've ever done. There were some big hurdles that I had to overcome. Uh, the first was living on my own. I'd actually realized I'd never lived on my own before. And I was in my early thirties at this point. And I'd always lived with either, you know, obviously when I was younger at home and then at uni with friends and then with my dad and then back with friends and then at my mum's house and then all of a sudden I was with a partner that I was with for 10 years and I think it was the first time where I was waking up without my dogs in, you know in the house and that's a big thing for me like having that like now I don't know if you can see there's one on the floor one in the other room I always have dogs around me um and it's amazing how much even just having their their energy around me makes you feel like you're not alone whereas I suddenly was in like a high-rise apartment on the 25th floor overlooking like beautiful um like Michigan Avenue and oh my god the sunsets were just divine I mean that was be that was just so beautiful but literally but no one to share them with stonkle silence yeah. like the silence was like eerie <laughs> it was like ah. and I think suddenly like having that was the hardest thing and not knowing anyone like not yeah my job was to network so I literally for the first six months I think I went out like every day <laughs> because if I wasn't in the bar downstairs trying to get to know people I was like networking pe work um people stayed at work in the office we had a lovely office and people would stay at night we had free beer so people would stay and do karaoke and do wine nights and do all sorts of stuff and that was amazing but I think yeah I think the hardest thing was being on my own over there and I think not being around what I was used to 
was was literally flipped my life upside down. <laughs> and I think um, probably not to go into too much, but I think landing. I think one of the the hardest things for me was I'd been at a show. So I, I left. I think it was like the sixth of October or something on a Saturday. We went to Disney World or like went to Orlando. We did a big show for Sitecore at the time because we were a big tech, we were a big like CMS company. Um, when they left me and I flew to Chicago, so I've been away for about five days. And I landed on the Thursday night, and then I woke up on the Friday morning. It was my first day in the office where I was going to stand up in front of 350 people on a microphone. My boss was there. Um, my CEO, um, or actually, I don't, actually, I don't know if she'd arrived at that point. No, she hadn't. She was arriving the next day. So I was actually purely on my own at this point. The, the British people hadn't flown over yet. And I had to stand up and I had to go in for half a day. And they were doing what's called like a payback day. And I had to go to a dog facility, like a, um, what do you call it? It was just awful. A pound. Awful. Hundreds, yeah, pound. It was a pound. It was literally a pound. And it was like hundreds of dogs. Some of them, who never see daylight because they're under court case and they can't leave their cell. It's like a cell. It's like a jail for dogs. And all these dogs that have been given up. And um, I knew I was going to that. And obviously I wasn't with my dogs. So I knew it was going to be a pretty upsetting day. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, in the morning, I I woke up to a lovely text message from my um, then husband <laughs> saying that our marriage was over. Um, so it, that that wasn't just something that happened overnight, but that text message was not expected. And I remember having to, you talk about resilience, <laughs> and putting on a brave face. I had to go to that job knowing I was just waking up on my own, not having anything around me um, that I knew. Um, luckily, my system had actually bought me this like blanket thing it was huge. It was like a warm mural that had two of my dogs on. And I literally pretty much slept with that wrapped around me. <laughs> I woke up and I had to go and stand on stage in front of 350 people and say, hi, I'm Jess. I'm here. Happy Jess, so the positive person in the room. Um, be the one that shows up when my life had just fallen apart <laughs> by a text message. <laughs> I mean, I laugh now, but it wasn't funny. And, um, yeah, that was the start of the dark, but the light was the fact that, God, I had to pull myself through it. I had to graft and grind every day so that I didn't end up in a hole. I had to be on the microphone. I represented the whole of the UK. So every week we had an amazing Thursday afternoon town hall, which I loved because everyone came into this beautiful area in the middle of like two wings and in the middle was where the canteen was huge screens you had all of South America live sometimes London came on and like literally you could have anything from 200 to 500 people on this call and I would have to do a spot on the microphone every week to say who what we've been doing what I was looking for to make sure people knew who I was and don't get me wrong that's the bit I like doing but god I had to do that every week knowing that you know I was getting divorces through on email I was getting all this stuff going on and I knew no one. I had no one to talk to. Um, and it's not like you can turn off. Remember, I think I told, I told someone now because I was just like, oh my God, like, <laughs> I'm now single. What the hell just happened? Um, and no one knew what to yeah, do because no one knew me. Like, so was it crazy. was just insane. Um, an insane time. Of... I think if people, oh, sorry, darling. I was going to say it almost like 
brings tears to your eyes because everyone goes through like a really dark time at some point. So how do you, what, what made you, first of all, actually, it's very impressive that you did pull through because a lot of people would just say, I'm not turning up to work and they'd just sack it off. What gave you the strength to, where, where do you get that from? What, what's the, like the fire inside you that didn't let this stop you? I think it's, I've always been really competitive and I have, um, like I said before, like the moment I was jumping a meter on a, and I was six years old, you know, that's three, three of me almost stacked on top of each other mm-hmm. on a tiny pony. I, I've always wanted to succeed. Like my, my, my dad used to always talk about, you know, he used to take me on training programs. He was in um, sort of training HR for a long time. And from a young age, I used to go in and help him put the rulers out on the tables and sees workshops and everything and my you know mum and dad they've always grafted they grafted a lot and it's been instilled in me from a very young age that you work you work you work and I don't know I, I had to survive like I was out there I was on the end of a line <laughs> but that line for me was very hard and it was touch and go at certain points but there was no way in my life, I was giving up on that challenge. I had fought for, like I say, I'd, I'd put that out to the universe. I'd manifested that for years. And there was no way in my life I was going to let somebody or anybody um, upset that apple cart. I'm just like hungry for delivering good stuff. And I really want to achieve things. Me and the people around me, I want them to achieve good things. Now, what I've learned from all of that is to try and give back as much as possible and to help other people succeed. Because if I can help them succeed, then I'm already succeeding. And it's really amazing for me to watch others succeed. What I've learned from that though is that don't I think I was so hurting so bad. And what I didn't do is I remember telling my CEO when she landed on the Saturday, I was like, oh, just so you know, we've split up. And she's like, oh shit, are you okay? I was like, yes, I'm okay, I'm fine. Obviously, I wasn't fine. <laughs> and I think I realized it took me until that was like the October. It took me until the April where I had a total crash, like a massive crash where I just like had enough with everything that I realized I wasn't fine and I needed lots of help. And I should, I, I would have dealt with it today. I would have dealt with it differently, but I'd never been through that before. And you know what? Coming out of that, I'm such a stronger person i'm still emotional i'm still um i get upset at watching movies about you know things like divorce and things like that makes me really sad and i'm happier out of it and it's not you know relationship wise i'm absolutely more than happy i've got great my dogs are amazing got beautiful horse i'm so blessed i've got a roof over my head um, and i work with amazing people for an amazing company but i absolutely wouldn't have got my ibm job if i hadn't been through all of that because it just flipped, it literally flipped my life upside down. And yes, I would have liked to have done more in America, probably would still love to be there. Um, but I am, it meant I had the, I, I have the, I know I can get through stuff. So now I know that I've been through some really hard things and I came out the other side and I'm so grateful for it. And yes, I still have to do work on it. And there's still things that make me upset. Um, and I still sometimes need time out just to let my head breathe. But I know now what I need to do. 
and I'm open and honest. Like I had a conversation today with one of our colleagues, but we can work together and be open and honest if we're feeling stressed and feeling tired and we'll give each other hugs, you know, virtual hugs. And I would never have done that before. I'd have just sucked it up like I did in America and cracked on. And now I'm very much more open with certain people that I know I can trust. And I hope that my team that I work with uh, will be like that with me. And I try and instill things like if girls have period pain and things like that, where it can debilitate you. It's been taboo for so long. Like I was quite often have one-to-ones and I'm like, talk to us, let us know, go take the time back. We work long hours anyway, take the time back, look after yourself and then come back refreshed the next day. There's nothing worse than just powering, powering on when you're feeling like shit. Sometimes it's all right. Sometimes it's good for your brain to focus on something. Absolutely. But if you're really hurting, whether it's physical or mental pain, then sometimes just taking a bit of time out is what you need. And I would have done more of that if I'd have understood <laughs> more about my, you know, what I needed. I would have, I would have probably either come home and had a few months at home and then gone back out to America, or I'd have maybe taken a holiday because I hardly took any holiday. I just literally worked my ass off. I probably would have taken a few more weeks holiday and just spent a bit of time on a retreat or something like that and just looked after myself. So hopefully, you know, people can can sort of think about that because it's so important. Sometimes we just get fixated on gotta work, gotta work, gotta get it done. And that's cool. But then don't do it at the detriment of your your emotional and your physical, you know, mental health. That's got to come first. You can't do great work if you're in that state of mind. It just doesn't happen. And that's why I'm saying I probably was like 60%. I mean, yeah. super honest with you, Ollie. <laughs> it's like I probably was working at 60% capacity because my brain was elsewhere. Um which is a real shame, but it's what it is. Most people listening to this will be ambitious and want to be successful. So they might hear that and say, like, I can't take a rest because I need to get to this place. I need to get as quick as possible. Do you think it's actually, you can actually get to the end destination, say like five, 10, 15 years down the line faster in a way if you do take those rests and you know when you're hurting and you know when to like restore yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the positives of the pandemic and the COVID time was that we all realized suddenly, shit, we've been in a rat race for a long time. And yes, stuff has picked back up. But I think what the nice thing about it now is, and I and I came back through COVID, so I came back um, and had to start again just no, no house, no job, because they made a lot of people redundant. And when I came back, my job was totally different. And you know what? I spent three months on like a garden leave, which was brilliant, in an Airbnb with my dogs in the sun. And I hired a coach. I got a, I got a coach who helped me find my purpose. I went hiking and got rid of like limiting beliefs and things on the top of the mountain. I did a whole exercise with me and my dog on the mountain. And I just spent three months understanding what are my values? What do I stand for? What did I learn in America? What have I learned over my career? What do I want to learn going forward? And where can I apply those things? And that's when, you know, me and IBM found each other. And I got offered other jobs for other big consultancies on the same day, actually, as IBM. Um, and I didn't take them. And I took the one with the company that I thought aligned with my values. How inclusive are they? How diverse are they? What are their values? What are they trying to achieve? Um, 
how innovative are they? And I've done all of this. I've posted all over the, all over this Airbnb. And I did mm-hmm. loads. I did like a six-week program with this coach. And I took the time to realign. <clears throat> and I absolutely 100% believe that if you want to change a path, if you want, if you're going through a hard time and you have a goal, let doesn't matter if that goal ends up going out by a year, that's fine. But you'll be way more productive and you'll achieve way more in a shorter amount of time if you let yourself have the time to heal, if you let yourself go out and do something fun instead of staying up all night working and making sure you're spending the time on your passions and your passion projects and making sure your job is your passion project. You know, I've been in so many jobs and roles over the years where I've just gone, I am not aligned with this. It's not, it's making me not want to get up in the morning. And yes, I've learned some amazing things from those jobs. I've learned how not to be a manager, how not to, um, you know, how, what I don't want to do. But if you can take that time to just invest in yourself, I've done Tony Robbins courses and he always says, um, Every year, pre-book the year before at least one or two things that are for you personally. So whether you're with a partner, whether you're not, um, <clears throat> excuse me, go and book something for you. So last year I did a, I did a 20 Robbins piece and I went on a retreat in Italy on Lake Como. This year I'm going on, um, I'm going back to Chicago for the first time in three years. I'm going to go see all my friends that I made. I'm going to be a tourist. I'm going to go into our offices and go see the IBM offices. And I'm then going to go on another retreat where it's again, just realigning on my purpose, my values, my vision. This time I'm going to Portugal and I'm gonna go surfing with them. And I'm gonna do a bit of activity and learn something new, I've never surfed before. Whilst then just focusing inward and having deep conversations with people. And it gives me something to look forward to. So absolutely focus on you on what you need. Find someone you can trust in your friendship group or your business that you can have an open conversation with. And then if you can work flexibly, brilliant. You need to take two hours for lunch, but then you work a bit later, do it. Go and ride your bike for an hour. Whatever it is that means you can just simmer down and just let your mind go and focus, go have a coaching session, whatever that is, um, do it because you will reach your goals probably better and faster if you look after yourself. Yeah, that's so interesting. My last podcast guest is called Jennifer, and she has a, a platform called Evolve, which has coaches on it and matches people with coaches. And she actually also said about finding her values, and that helps her like make decisions and things. And that really yeah, like her so light bulb important. for me because I have no idea how to make decisions. I get like a worst decision or anxiety. I'll, I'll find <laughs> if I've got too many things going on, I just sort of par- get paralyzed. So, what are your values and how did you choose them and do you change them as time goes on and it, and it de- so this depends on what i'm doing so i have my core innate values around trust loyalty um and, and things like that but when i was looking at a job so i first of all with my coach i went and looked at my purpose and i looked at what is important to me in my own life and with the people around me um and then I, from there, I took those and then we looked at, okay, well, what sort of business do you want to work with? Which of the values that you have are important? So I was looking at like <clears throat> innovation, looking at creativity, looking at diversity and inclusion, looking at sustainability, <laughs> you know, all the things that I want to make sure that I'm working for a company 
that stacks up to those and that is actively doing something about them, not just talking the talk and having an investor report saying, yeah, we're ticking boxes, who's actually doing it, who has allies, who has an inclusive culture where you can speak up and not have retaliation, which is what your IBM's massive on. And that kind of thing was what I looked at. And actually when it came down to it, the two jobs, I'm not going to say the other person, but they're pretty much the same as IBM. Um, and I looked and I spoke to people in both businesses that I know. And in the other business, they were like, it's a bit of a frightening culture. They say they're doing all this stuff, but they're not. It's cutthroat, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, do I want to put myself back into that environment? I've been in that environment before. Did I enjoy it? Absolutely not. Yes, I love um, the pressure of a big bid. And I love all that kind of stuff. But do I want to be in a culture where I'm getting chastised, put in a box, um, not being able to speak freely, always getting bollocks for not hitting a target or whatever? Do I want to be in a business like that? Or do I want to be in a business where they actually live and breathe? They have wellness communities. They do meditation. They're like, I run a monthly meditation with our team. And I make sure I do a mindful session. And I've just set that up myself, but IBM does that all over the world. You know, you can join any, you can join, join a yoga at lunchtime if you want to. And they looked at their values. And I spoke to lots of people who work there. And yes, it's hard. Yes, it's tough. Yes, you've got to hit your targets. Yes, all the usual stuff, but it's wrapped around, you know, a culture that has been very, you know, lovely to be a part of. But it's a culture that you can breed yourself and you have the autonomy if you want to do a mindfulness session. If you want to do a DJ session, Ollie, you should do that actually. <laughs> I think that would be a great like I would Friday, love to DJ. Friday afternoon for, for us and the Indian I'm... team. We can and the, and the <laughs> Euro, Europe team will do we'll do DJ hour with Ollie. We should do it on the <laughs> London just have a on, party. on the rooftop. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> like absolutely. So yeah, you should, I think, and I think that's why like my values were strong and I got pulled towards the job. Now I could have, I could have gone for both. It was similar salaries, similar type of role. It was both a sales role at the time. Um, but gosh, am I glad I chose this one? Yes. And it's because I did that work and I truly believe doing that work and spending three months doing that work, understanding all that stuff helped me make the decisions. So you just talked about not being able to make decisions in that way. It was innate. I knew when I had the two offers on the table, red, you know, blue pill, red pill, whatever, green pill, red pill, which one do I take? I knew which one. I knew. I didn't have to. It just went bump, that one. I mean, and I was lucky enough to get off with the job and, and everything else. And I knew that as soon as I got in there, I could pave a path to a different career if I wanted to, because I was seeing people doing it. And that's what I wanted. I wanted the flexibility. That's some of the value of my flexibility to try new things and be different. And that's that came from my value session. So I definitely think it's something you should do. Like it's taking some time just to let the dust settle around you, see what you like, see what you want, and then planning your entrance. And the other interesting thing you did is actually speak to the people in the business, which coming back to what you were saying earlier, not enough people actually have that conversation and message someone on LinkedIn and say, can we have a chat? Because, as you say, you can't just read the website. Oh, I did that, actually. I forgot. I totally did that. So I was clever. So like, like <laughs> you said before about cold calling, right? You've got to do it in a way that is going to make sense. And I um, I was coy enough and, and cunning enough, I guess, to speak to someone that, that we knew or that I knew very well. Um, 
and he just said, speak to this person. Now, at the time, I didn't know that this person actually was the last person I would have interviewed with, as in on the chain of command. Um, he just said, speak to this person. He's really nice. He's, I think he's part of the the, the recruitment process. Um, but just reach out to him. I'll tell him about you. And that's so he'll, he'll be expecting. So we, we, we set that up. <laughs> and I was like, great. So I got him to tell him about me. Then when I reached out, I mentioned his name and said, hey, I'm looking at this job. I've done this. I spoke to this person. You recommended I speak to you. Could you just spend 15 minutes with me on a coffee? I'd love to get to know you and know more about the role. And he, and this was on LinkedIn, cold, cold messaging. And he messaged back, you know, probably within half an hour, actually. It was really quick. And he was just like, absolutely. I've heard all about you. Great. Here's my email. Let's set it up. So we set it up and we had a call. And we must have been on. We were supposed to be on for 20 minutes. I think we were on for an hour. And we were guessing away. We realized we both love music and we had lots of synergies. And I talked a little bit about my American role, but not in a lot of detail. It was more around just getting to know him. And I asked him loads of questions. Um, tried to find out what was important to him. So again, that pitch, who's going to be in the room? I knew he was going to be in the process, but I wasn't actually sure when, uh, where. And I think it was in that meeting where he sort of said to me, oh, normally if you get through to the final round, you'll be with me. And at that point I was like, yes, I've got to the right person. Mm -hmm. And that's always, you know, again, sales, half the battle is getting to the right person. If you can build that relationship with the person who's going to say yes or no, that's half the battle, right? Then if you package up how we would in an experiential way, you wow them. They're like, well, I'm in. But so what I did is I spoke to him and then I had to go back to the bottom, well, not <laughs> to the bottom, but to stage one, went through the first interview. Then the second interview, he came on. Now, he wouldn't normally do this, but he came on because I think he'd already spoken to me and he wanted to ask a few questions and get this um, other ladies. She was like the commercial officer or whatever, get her to, to chat to me and ask some questions because I also didn't necessarily have the full skills for the job. So I wasn't, I was going in under one service line, so one piece of technology that I'd worked on, but I wasn't a specialist in. I'd done loads of CMS work, but this was a CRM. So sorry, my dog behind is. That's you know, okay. Sorry, Cleo. <laughs> sorry. She's just going slow. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> edit. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and, and literally, it was just brilliant. And I could see him smiling all the way through. Although he was like trying to be really serious. I was like, I've got yeah. it in here. I think I'm in. And um, and then when I was speaking to the recruitment person, he was like, how did it go? And I was like, I was on for like two hours, like two, three hours. This this, this sort of second stage interview is massive. And, um, and then I didn't have to do a third. And I think normally people like to do a third with so the sort of level I was going at. And then randomly like I say on the day I got two offers on the same day from two consultancies and I was and I like I say fairly believe it because the sales process I went through was was the right process to do and I highly advise that if you can get a coffee with someone meet them in person is even better but just so you get it's almost like a speed date <laughs> it's like just mm -hmm. get in front of them and find out what's important to them and see if the values Ask them questions. Get you get a real gauge of people. They'll tell you the truth. They won't. You can tell if they're going. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, amazing. You're like, is it really? Are you sure? Um, but I got really good um, level from him. He was open and honest. We were candid with each other. 
basically said, look, technology is no issue. I've learned all these technologies over my year, over my, I'm not training any, any of them. I have trained over the years in them, but I've never started training. I didn't go to uni to be a technologist. You know, I went to uni to do music production, but I did back-end stuff there and front-end stuff. And it's exactly the same as consultancy. So yeah, really, really interesting, but there's definitely some things you can do there from a recruitment yeah. perspective, but also from how you mirror your values to choosing the right company. I'm such a proponent for like, the cold outreach. Like people just do not, you can't begin to comprehend how much you can get from just <laughs> messaging a hundred people and seeing who replies. My favorite ever DJ, Dan Shake, he starts off DJing by messaging 200 record labels, at 200 and one replied. George Russell, yeah. the F1 driver, he was emailing Toto Wolf, head of Mercedes, when he was like 12. For years, for years yeah. he was doing that, turning up at it's the events. Crazy. And he, But he had to do it because obviously I'm a big F1 fan and I love his story. And he then had to prove himself. So not only did he email all the time, like direct to Toto all the time. I think Toto, he says in his podcast, doesn't he? He's like, oh my God, this guy was just messaging me all the time. But then he had yeah. to win. So not only did he have to, did he get the relationship? He then had to prove himself before Toto was like, oh, actually, this kid means business. Not only is he consistent in his communications, he <laughs> obviously is showing that he's passionate and he's showing up and he's delivering. Like we said, when I said from the beginning, his delivery is high performance to the end. Hence why he's now in a Formula yeah. 1 scene. Love that, Ole. Love that, dude. Yeah, it's there's, great. there's a... There's a big lesson in that. There's a huge lesson in that. And on that note, I think that's a great high to end on. I hope people realise that. <laughs> Just wants to be in Formula One. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a Formula Actually, One driver. Well, sending some, start sending some DMs. Start sending some consistent <laughs> emails. I should learn, yeah. right? Pra- practice what you preach. You might need to, you, yeah, you might need to do a few go-karting sessions as well, but... I'm sure. Oh, I can, oh I've done. I've got trophies. I've got trophies from go karting, rallying, <laughs> go karting, dirt track racing. Well, well Toto, if you're listening, here, yeah. here's the next. Say he's over. I'm your okay, next Jesse Wolf. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I hope you have fun at your open mic tonight and sing your heart out. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I think the final final thought for me is: don't let anyone dim your sparkle. And I think, you know, we all have the ability within us to do whatever we want. Don't let anyone tell you differently. I've had so many people over the years who have tried to mold me into something and I've rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And I've finally found a path where I feel like I can be myself and it's refreshing. And I think just, and and also remember, I think one of the other things that someone told me was, um, and I think, again, Tony Robbins says this a lot. I've mentioned him a lot in this, but, I think I've done so much of his things over the years, but a lot of people say this as well. Um, you are the five people. You become the five people you spend the most time with. So pick your pick your tribe carefully. If you want to learn and be the best at something, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, I always try and find the best people to be around. Like even in our business, find the partners, find the, the it, could be, it could be someone who's just starting and they could actually be the best at this this thing that, None of us can do. If you want to learn it, go be around them, be around that people. If you want to be more outgoing uh, or you want to be better at presenting, go find people that can help coach you and ask them for help and be around them 
because it is so true. Like whoever you hang around with and spend the most time with, which a lot of us is at work still, um, especially if we're back in the offices, you know, be really careful and mindful about who you spend your time with and then enjoy it and, you know, go along for the ride. Life is definitely higher than lows, but, you know, it's how resilient and how passionate you can be to get out of the lows and the learnings that you take that help you on your journey. And I think there's just some really good learnings from my career, which hopefully will carry on for another few years or so. Um, and you can take those with you. That's what about you, Ollie, though? Have you got any final, final thoughts that you've learned? That was beautifully said for, us, for the start. And I would also um, echo how you said about um, rebelling against people trying to change you and mold you. It's so important, I feel like, to stay true to who you are and keep doing what you're good at and not let people like say things that just get into your skin and just make you feel like you're doing stuff wrong, even though you're doing what you're like passionate about. So, yeah, yeah, and be kind, be kind and... with that. I think don't rebel too much, but just keep aligned with your values. And if you're finding that the people around you aren't sort of helping instill that courage and that confidence and find it within yourself, but then go and find the people that you can spend the time with and reduce the time you spend with that person and go and, you know, find the time with the people who you do buzz off with. But remember, it's got to come within first. And there'll be a lot of people that don't understand us creatives and our creative brain and we're very different. We can be flappy, we can be all over the place. Um, and and it's the people who are very structured don't often understand that. Likewise, we sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm quite a weird person, I hybrid between the two, but typical like ideation people who just want ideas out there, um, it's hard for other people to understand that. And it's the yin and yang, isn't it, right, of the world? So I think just be kind with each other and try not to rebel, but try find it as fuel to, to keep going on your path. Yeah. And to find the people around you who help you then propel that journey forward don't, that don't inhibit it. And if you haven't found your people yet, don't give up because they're there yes. somewhere. That's how I found well, you guys and the team. You did. And I've got to say to anybody listening to this, Ollie, Ollie did a video that my God blew me away. Like I remember when Danny from our team sent him, look at what this guy sent me. And Ollie had done a video that he'd spent God knows how many hours on um, putting together a, a reason night. why he should be in our team. And I was at, I've never had anyone do that. And I absolutely loved it. And I was like, that guy I want to work with. Like, and since I've been like, any, any opportunity, I'll pull Ollie in where I can when he's got time. Um, because it's people like you, Ollie, that, that fuel my fire. You know, you fuel my fire to keep going. And I want to be around people like yourself to make sure that I do stay on track and I can push myself further forward and propel myself into new worlds. And you know, you're one of those people that does that. So thank you. <laughs> oh, thanks. No, thank you. Cause you, right. you definitely are someone literally right back at you. I can hold a mirror up to what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> See, you. There, there, there is ways you find the right people and it gives you energy. It makes you happy. Um, that's the key takeaway in this episode. Good. Let's go win some deals. <laughs> let's yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Have a lovely Thank you, evening. Wally.